Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. On this week's episode of White Wine Question Time. We, I remember us having a meeting where we talked about it and this was really important in shaping what The Last League became because we had this meeting when we can't do jokes about this. There's nothing funny here and we shouldn't be trying to do jokes about this. But we need to talk about it. It was the weirdest thing. I've turned up at the Opera House and Billy Connolly's out the front just having a look in the gift shop. <laughs> and I kind of wandered, I wandered over and said, oh, Mr Connolly, I'm, I'm here to see your show tonight. <laughs> and he's like, all right. I said, do you, uh, do you get nervous? And he went, uh, I remember him saying, no, it's not so much nervous as anxious. I think the world of Twitter and online media um, and clickbait has led us to a world where we think that if someone's offended online, then that's the end of the world. Welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is something of a rare find, a comedian who balances his wit, grit and humour, passing comment on the issues of the day live on the last leg, and yet all the while still manages to come over as a truly nice guy. His comedy is rarely unkind, and if it is, well, it's usually at his own expense. 
By the time he washed up on our comedy shores from his native Australia, he was already an established comedian and broadcaster, having honed his craft as a comedy writer on Breakfast Radio and then as a stand-up before many years going on to host the Aussie TV quiz show Spicks and Specs, which is where he met his wife, Australian opera singer Ali McGregor, when she appeared as a guest. Born and raised in Sydney, he made a name for himself outside of Australia with his own blend of observational comedy and heartfelt storytelling, performing at comedy festivals around the world. In 1997, he made his first appearance at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and went on to earn three consecutive Perrier and Award nominations for his shows there from 2001 to 2003. But it was his appointment as the anchor of Channel 4's The Last Leg in 2012, which began its life as part of the London Paralympic coverage before morphing into an irreverent take on current affairs that truly changed the game for him. As well as his work as a host and a stand-up, he's also the host of Super League Rugby coverage for Channel 4, a sport he continues to play and is a passionate advocate for disability rights, having been born without a right foot. Oh, and he's also a recent and very successful children's author. He lives with his wife Ali and their two daughters between their homes in Melbourne and London and I cannot wait to talk to him. Let's dial him up, shall we? It's Adam Hills. That guy sounds great. He's good, huh? I like him. <laughs> it's very rare to be introduced with such a thorough introduction and it's kind of lovely to listen to all that and go... Yeah, I've had a good life, right? <laughs> you really have. <laughs> it felt like a, it felt like a "This is your life" episode. It's really in a really lovely way. So, uh, a guest recently described it as an obit. <laughs> <laughs> no, you had too much of a smile in your voice for it to be an obit. <laughs> I can do, I can do the cocked head. Mm. Sympathy. If that, yeah, if you, if that was an obit, then you were strangely happy about me dying. <laughs> But it's, I think it's always really nice. I mean, certainly for the listener, I always try to lay out the life of the, the guest so that they know exactly what they're diving into for the next hour because it's a huge commitment to, to give someone your ears for an hour. But also, I have found across the, the course of, of making this podcast that for a lot of guests, it reminds them of things that they'd completely forgotten about their life and times. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there was anything I've forgotten. I mean... I think being a, certainly being a, a stand-up comic, but being I don't know, possibly of the mindset that I am, I, I you know live in the moment is a great way of looking at it. But you're never you're never comfortable with your career. You're always looking at oh my god, what's next? What's the next gig? What's the next show? Yeah. And often in a kind of fearful way of oh I hope I don't screw that up. Oh I really <laughs> need to get this one right. And so every now and then to take a step and look back and think about you know, to hear all of that laid out in front of you, it kind of makes me go, oh, yeah, right, okay, no, okay, I, I, maybe, I, maybe I know what I'm doing. You really, well, you certainly read that way from really kind <laughs> of, um, you know, an unusual start writing jokes for a breakfast radio show. I've never known that job to exist, even here, where breakfast is obviously one of the biggest shows on the networks. There was a thing in Australia, and there still is, to, to be fair, that... Breakfast radio became quite huge in Australia, probably in, in about the 80s, I think. Mm. Um, and then by the 90s, uh, it was enormous. And I know that there were there were like radio consultants from Australia that would come over here or that would go to the States to kind of tell them how to do breakfast radio. Um, but in particular in Australia, uh, like I remember being in my teens and listening to a guy in Sydney called Doug Mulray, 
who was just your proper... And, I mean, I guess the same happened here with people like Kenny Everett. Like, I grew up mm. loving Kenny Everett. Yeah, of course, and he was a Capital Radio DJ. Everyone forgets that. Absolutely. The Kenny Everett show was virtually a radio show mm. just that had been transposed onto TV. Yeah. So... I guess, you know, I loved that idea of radio comedy and that style of live comedy. And really the radio job in Sydney came about because a friend and I, a comedian called Belinda Franks, we were supporting Britain's naughtiest hypnotist, Peter Powers. Peter Powers. (laughs) Peter Powers was Britain's... That's not his real name. (laughs) <laughs> um, no, it's um, it's uh, um, it's Paul Powers is his real name. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> um, so Peter Powers came out to Sydney, and to be fair to him, the promoter was terrible. The promoter d- didn't promote the show properly. Uh, got Belinda and I on as the support acts, and it was an amazing show. Like it was, it was. <clears throat> You know, getting getting men to think they were giving birth on stage or apologise to their wives. So, oh, yeah, it was incredible. Um, but it just, it, it ended up after a week and a half having to close. Again, like I said, because the promoter was terrible. I know Peter's gone back to Australia and since toured successfully. Good. So it's not him. Um, and so Belinda and I found ourselves, we'd only been doing comedy for maybe two or three years at that point sitting up late one night depressed because we didn't have a gig to go to because the run had been cancelled drinking coffee at like you know 11 o'clock at night in king's cross in sydney thinking well now what do we do and we basically said you know what why don't we apply for a job on a radio station why don't we um wait until the next the morning papers come out because they used to come out at like 1 a.m yeah especially in the king's cross area because same with the king's cross here you used to go to get the first editions around 1 30 a.m Absolutely. Yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Old so school. we went, right, let's stay out. Let's stay out till, I mean, probably fueled by coffee. Let's stay out till 1am and we'll get the papers and we'll go home. And we went back to Belinda's place and we wrote a whole bunch of jokes based on what was in the papers. And then we faxed them. I mean, you might need another podcast to explain to some listeners what a fax Don't machine worry. was. <laughs> we faxed them and we faxed them to the number two radio station. Not the number one, because number one was Doug Mulray, was the guy that I grew up listening to. But we thought, well, no, he's number one. He doesn't need more jokes. He's not going to look for comedy writers. Go for number two. They're the ones that are going to be going, right, how do we get to number one? So we faxed them a whole bunch of jokes. I went home, Belinda went home. And then the next morning I got a call from the producer of the radio show saying, "Uh, we really like the jokes you sent in. Is that your way of applying for the job? And I went... What job? And he went, the job that we advertised in the paper for over the weekend (laughs) for a comedy writer. So complete coincidence. We didn't know that they had applied for comedy writers. We just sent in a whole bunch of jokes. And so everyone else that applied sent in a resume. They said, this is what I've done and this is what I can do. We just faxed in two pages worth of jokes. (laughs) Like one of which they actually used on the show that morning. Uh. And so he said, we, you know... And, and I went, oh, yeah, the job that was in the paper. <laughs> and he said, well, you guys are great. Do you want to stay on as freelancers and just keep, keep sending us jokes and we'll use whatever we can and we'll pay you for every joke that we use? And so I guess over the next couple of months, <clears throat> excuse me, we would write, we would, you know, get together two or three times a week or over the phone, we'd write jokes, we'd send them in. And then when the new year came around, they basically said, you know what, let's get rid of the old writers. Let's bring in these new guys. 
Um, and so they took us both on as writers, and within a week they tried to get rid of us. <laughs> Did they? Why? Because yeah. we didn't know what we were doing. We had no idea what we were doing. We just gave but, good facts. <laughs> yeah, but the old writers were so bitter about being kicked out um, that they didn't want to come back. So they kind of were stuck with us. And in, then in the meantime, we slowly worked out how to how to write jokes for radio. So that, that's... And at the time, the, the new radio hosts uh, that they had brought in was a guy called Paul Holmes, who was a great DJ, and a children's puppet called Agro. <laughs> we had a similar so, vibe here with Zig and Zag, but they were on breakfast television and they were offensive and Irish. Yes, there you go. So I guess similar yeah. to that. So, yeah. yeah. So we were writing jokes for a puppet. <laughs> yeah. But in some ways that's so much easier, right? Because they can say anything. Uh, yeah, absolutely. except it's a puppet on radio, so no one can see that it's oh, a yeah, puppet. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I get you, yeah. Visually, it's not working, is it? But, <laughs> and so I guess, I guess after, you know, just a little bit, a little bit of chutzpah and a little bit of, you know, dumb luck, and a little, a little bit of being proactive. That's really what this industry is about. Like initiative. The amount of people, yeah, the amount of people who sit around and think, well, uh, you know, how do I get into TV or how do I get a job on, you know, in comedy? And you go, we do it. You've got to make it happen yeah. yourself. And yeah. like I said, we got lucky. And we stuck at it. And then I guess after about a year and a half of that, they then asked me if I would move to Adelaide and kind of go on air. Because gradually I started doing characters on this radio show as well or sketches or whatever else. So it was a it was an amazing learning experience because you, you're doing it live every day. Mm-hmm. You start work at 4.30 in the morning and you've got to have sketches on air within two hours. It's exciting so, though, isn't it? I love that kind of adrenaline and the deadlines. And it's really not that far from what I do now on The Last Leg. Like well, The Last say, Leg is virtually a radio show live on TV. Totally. It was the ultimate apprenticeship for what was to come. Oh, 100%. Because then I went from there to Adelaide and then I, I co-hosted The Breakfast Show in Adelaide for a couple of years and then I hosted my own morning show for a while. So all of that stuff, you know, getting people to call in, responding to the news as it comes in, during ad breaks, all of that kind of stuff is still exactly what I do on The Last Leg now. It really is, isn't it? And you do it so well. I mean, 2012, you you had, what, seven shows commissioned? Was it seven shows? Or seven Oh, it was either seven or nine for the Paralympics. Yeah. I can't quite remember. But, and again, that is, so there was a moment in about 2004 when I was asked to go back to Australia and host this music quiz show. And things were going quite well for me over here. As you said, I'd been nominated for the Perrier Award. I was yeah. making appearances on TV shows and... I was asked to go back and host Spicks and Specs, this music quiz show. So by the end of that, by the end of seven years, 270 episodes of, of hosting that show, um, you know, then I was asked to come over and do the Paralympics. And it, it, it just, it didn't feel like too much of a stretch for me yeah. hosting the Paralympics show. It was live. Um, it was about disability sport, which I love. It was about the Paralympics, which I love. Um were you playing sport then as well? Were you still were you doing the rugby? Um, I wasn't doing the rugby then, but I had played, you know, when I was in my teens, I played loads of tennis. I was a tennis coach for a while. Um, I played rugby when I was at high school. So, yeah, I, I mean, even when I was at, when I left high school and went to university, I studied to be a journalist. Like, I, and I wanted to be a sports journalist. And funnily enough, after a few days of doing The Last Leg, Josh and Alex and I started chatting and we all wanted to be sports journalists. Did you? Well, Alex was. That's how they found yeah. him. He was a sports journo. 
And Josh studied at college because he wanted to be a sports journalist, and so did I. So the three of us all then coming together for the last leg was uh, a little bit of magic and luck, again, all thrown in together. It really was. And then they had, whose decision was it, once the Paralympics were, were done, to keep it going and to turn it into a topical take on the news? Well, there was <laughs> there was a funny... So after we did our first episode, again, we didn't know what we were doing. We were still rehearsing. In fact, I remember five minutes before we went to air, uh, the producer said, right, we can rehearse part four or you can go to the loo, but we don't have time for both. Uh, I've been, went, listen, I've um, been there as and when you've done that. You know, when I, the first time I hosted the X Factor final, we hadn't rehearsed the results show ever. Yeah. Right, yes. Yeah. yeah, so I'm with you. There is no I, toilet break that's going to help you in that moment. Oh, no, I, I took the toilet break. <laughs> Shut up. I just I went, stood there fine. and absolutely wet myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can get through anything on an empty bladder, so... <laughs> Yeah, so the go on, he's in your ear. So we did the show and, you know, it went relatively well. And the next morning they said, look, the, I remember the ratings were something like 900,000. I had literally no idea if that was good or bad. Yeah. Had no, it's like, good. I, I no idea. Um, and then I got a call from one of the writers. I was on my way in and he said, right, you better come in quick because there's a meeting here. I think we're in big trouble. And so I walked in and there was a meeting and there was a commissioning editor from the channel and everyone was like ashen faced. <sighs> And she ran through all the things that were wrong with the show and all the things that needed fixing. And I found out later, it's because the channel watched the first episode and went, oh my God, this is great. We can really turn this into something. Let's get a, let's get a commissioning editor involved. Let's turn this into an entertainment show. There could, be a, there could be a future here. But it didn't feel like it. It felt like we were being, we were naughty school children and we, we were being chided for not doing <laughs> so the only thing was I think as we left that meeting someone else from Channel 4 said what are you doing after the Paralympics and I went oh, I don't know I think at that point I had I had planned to go to New York for a month and, and be the compare of the comedy seller in New York right. um, and I said oh, I don't know I might be going to New York why and, and she said don't talk to anybody else before you talk to us at Channel 4 and I remember going oh, that's I thought you didn't like the show I thought we just got in trouble for the show. I'm not, <laughs> okay. And so I think even before the Paralympics had finished, I'd had a meeting. I remember having a meeting with Jay Hunt, who was the head of Channel 4, with my manager, uh, a guy called Addison Cresswell. Oh, and, the um, late, great Addison Cresswell. Yeah. Oh. So you know what? He was like a force, a cigar-smoking force of nature. All right, copy oh my boy type thing. We need, we need more characters like him in the business. Addison, you could hear a reverberating down the, the alleyways <laughs> of Soho. When, you know, by four o'clock he was in the Groucho and effing and blinding at everyone, yeah. Well, so, yeah, so we're sitting in this meeting with, like, the head of Channel 4, who I've never met before, and she was saying... And she was lovely, and she said, I'll be honest, Adam, I've never seen an audience connect with someone the way they've connect with, connected with you so quite so quickly. Did like, just people are really, they're really connecting with you, and I think you could do big things. I've just never seen this happen before. She's also part Aussie, so there was an Aussie twang in there. She said, and then she looked at Addison, she said, I mean, if we're going to talk contracts, I probably shouldn't be saying all this in front of you, should I? <laughs> and he looked at her and went, it's all right, darling, keep talking, I'm just watching his fee go up. <laughs> <laughs> and what I loved about them both was the, she then looked at me and went, excuse me, Adam, for a second, looked back at Addison and went, fuck off, you pig. <laughs> Did she and really? Went, Can we continue? And I thought, 
<laughs> I'm loving all of this. All I'm of loving it. that my manager is that you know brash. I'm loving that the head of Channel Four is quite happy to put him back in his place. I want to work with both of these people. So it all came together. But I swear to God, we had a meeting. We had a meeting with Channel Four where they said, "What kind of show do you want to do?" And I went, "Well, why don't we do a weekly disability sports roundup?" Like no one's ever done that before. And it can morph into talking about the news as well. But why don't we pitch it as a disability, a Friday night disability sports show that occasionally covers the news? And they went, we love it. And then we signed the contract and then they came back and went, right, so it's a weekly satirical news show. <laughs> Nothing to do with people with disabilities. I, like, I thought we were doing disabilities. <laughs> and in fact, early doors, there was, the weirdly, there was, there was a kind of feeling from the channel when we started of don't talk about disability sports. In fact, don't talk about disability or sports. We want this to be a news show. And we want it to be live because that seems to work seemed to work during the Paralympics. But in the first couple of weeks, that we would talk about disability or we talk about sport. And they go, no, no, we're not a sports show. We're a news show. And we're You're not really a disability confused. show. We're in... It was, I got so, and the, so weirdly, confused. on about episode, I'm going to say episode three, maybe episode four in 2013, um, Oscar Pistorius shot Reva Stancamp and it was the biggest news of the week. And so suddenly the biggest news of the week did combine disability and sport and Paralympics. In a way that as well, that really you were uniquely placed to break down that story because yes, he was a sports hero. He was, so he was a hero and a villain in that moment. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And it brought people to, it brought him to people's attention that maybe may not have even been aware of him before. It was kind of remarkable. I mean, it was remarkable for so many reasons and it was horrific. Like, let's start with that as the baseline. Mm. But it was remarkable that a Paralympian was front page of the papers for mm. anything, especially, but especially it, in a weird way, it showed that disabled people aren't just the inspirational heroes you see at the Paralympics. They're everyday people. They're superstars. They're newsworthy. They make mistakes. They do bad things. Like there's so much more to Paralympians than just, oh, the guy with one leg has done something amazing. Mm. And we, I remember us having a meeting where we talked about it and this was really um, important in shaping the way the last leg, what the last leg became because we had this meeting and went, we can't do jokes about this. There's nothing funny here and we shouldn't be trying to do jokes about this, but we need to talk about it. So let's be honest and let's just say we're not going to do jokes about this. Mm. And I think because we <clears throat> because we'd come from covering the Paralympics where again you can't just mock the Paralympics. Do you know what I mean? You we you have to celebrate Gosh, the yeah. achievements yeah. and the sporting did. achievements and you have to take it seriously and then you can have a little bit of fun. Mm. So I think that bought us the license with Os- the Oscar Pistorius and Reva Steenkamp to talk about it genuinely and seriously, which we did for the first week. And then, of course, it rumbled on week after week after week. And then eventually we could go, okay, well, let's talk about, okay, if you thought you heard a burglar in the middle of the night, would you put your prosthetic legs on? (laughs) And if you went to jail, would you take your prosthetic legs with you? And would they be considered dangerous? And so then we we started to find the light in a really, really heavy story. And I think... Ever since then, no matter what was thrown at us, Charlie Hebdo, Westminster attacks, Joe Cox, whenever a horrific story happened, we knew, okay, we've almost got a template for this. Let's be genuine. Let's talk about it seriously and let's try and find the light. And so that, weirdly, that Oscar Pistorius story 
um, set us up for how to cover the news from there on in. I think so much of that, though, Adam, sits with you. It's your tone. It's mm. you. You you created the playing field on which the others could play, and you do it so well. And that's something that you know you hark back to what Jay Hunt saw about you in that meeting. And I and I get it, right? There is just a connection to you. But I've wanted for my first uh, question to talk to you about some of the important connections that you've had with others. So are you ready? Okay, let's go. We just heard there that Jay Hunt was a big um, game changer in terms of your career. You had a force like Addison Cresswell behind you. But also, I know that just when you needed it most, um, a kind of guardian angel appeared in your path in the shape and size of Billy Connolly. So I just wondered (laughs) if you could tell me about some of the people that have been formative in terms of putting you here today where you are. Everyone. Everyone. Shall I start with Billy Connolly? Let's, well, there's a, that's a very good place to start. Okay. He, I refer to him as my hairy godmother. <laughs> so, Great. So I first, met, I first met Billy Connolly out the front of the Sydney Opera House in about 1989. I had gone there to see him do a show. And it was the weirdest thing. I've turned up at the opera house and Billy Connolly's out the front just having a look in the gift shop. <laughs> and I kind of wandered, I wandered over and said, oh, Mr. Connolly, I'm, I'm here to see your show tonight. <laughs> and he's like, all right. I said, do you, uh, do you get nervous? And he went, I, I remember him saying, no, it's not so much nervous as anxious. You know, I just want to be on stage. Um, but I went and saw him live and he was amazing that night. And then... About three or four years later, I was in Adelaide. I was on radio. The radio station was um, sponsoring his his live show. And so the radio boss said, do you want to, you know, we're running a competition for people to go backstage and meet him. Do you want to take them? I know you're a big fan of Billy Connolly. And I went, oh, my God, yeah. So I went backstage and these people met him and they all clammed up. None of them spoke. And and he didn't know, he, was, he didn't know what to say, basically. And someone said, oh, this is Adam. He's from the radio station. And he went, oh, right, are you on radio? And I said, well, I'm actually a stand-up comic. And he went, oh, God, did you like the show? Um, and I went, oh, my God, I loved it. I said, I was learning so much. And he went, it gets easier as you go along, you know, you'll learn. And he started giving me advice. Coaching you, and brilliant. And we posed, posed for a photo, and then the, the, the camera wasn't ready. And he went, oh, God, the amount of times you'll spend in your life waiting for a punter's camera to get ready, you know. <laughs> And at the end of it, he walked off down the hallway going, just do it. It's the best job in the world. You'll love it and you'll hate it, but you'll love it. Just do it. Just never stop. Just do it. And so that all rang in my head. And I remember a few years later, in fact, maybe a year later, I was kind of asked if I wanted to, I basically had to make a choice between radio and stand-up. And I remember the boss of the radio station saying, look, you've got to choose one because you can't you can't commit either to to either of them at the moment. And I had Billy Connolly's little voice going, just do it, just do it. So I went, right, I'm going to go to Edinburgh. I'm going to do the Edinburgh Fringe. I'm going to, you know, start basing myself in London, which I did. And then maybe oh, three, four years later, I was at the London Comedy Store. I was host, uh, no, I was the last act on that night on an amazing bill that was like Mickey Flanagan, Mandy Mewden, Dara O'Brien and me. <laughs> and... 
Billy Connolly came in during the interval to watch the show. And I was the last act on. So I went on stage and told the whole story of him saying, just do it. You need to do it. And I was like, and he's here tonight. And they all turned around. Everyone gave him a standing ovation. I said, so thanks to you, Billy. I did it. I'm here at the comedy store. Did my set, went backstage. And then he came backstage and he just gave me a hug and went, you did it. You did it. And gave me a hug. I'm proud of you. You did it. And like hung out backstage with everyone and was just the perfect gentleman. And then a few years later, I was asked to be on a TV show where people give their, you know, recollections and tell stories of Billy Connolly. And I said, oh, I've got a really good story. And they went, yeah, we know. We interviewed Billy last week and he mentioned it. So that's why we're coming to you to get the story. He really is your hairy godmother. He is my hairy godmother. So... But there's, you know, I could pinpoint so many different people along the way. Like, I remember very, very, very early on um, doing a gig where I was I was compare the early show and the late show at the Comedy Store in Sydney. Because I learned I had this skill to compare. Not everyone can. Because mm. you've got to be vaguely responsible. You've got to not steal the limelight. You've got to do stick to your time and then you've got to bring on the... You've got to get the audience in the right spot, then bring on the next act... You've yeah. got to ad lib with them. Not everyone can yeah. do that. Like it's some hard. comments will go out. You've got to be a funny traffic it. cop, right? You're yeah, that's a great all, way of putting it. All moving all night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, again, hard. the kind of stuff that I do on the last leg in a way. Mm. Um, and so what had happened this night was there we'd had a full house in the early show and then the second show there were only about 50 people but 40 of them had been in the first show and they'd seen all my jokes. I had no new material. So I started talking about my prosthetic foot being born with one foot and i said um i made a job i'd been at a party on the weekend where i said oh, i've got a i've got an artificial foot and a woman said can you still have sex <laughs> and i thought that was hilarious <laughs> and i left it at that and i moved on and this what comedian backstage response. i know right what kind of sex so is she that- having <laughs> <laughs> well that so there's the interesting thing. At the time, this comedian backstage, a guy called Richard Carter, just said, you're not good enough to talk about your leg yet. And I was like, what? And he went, you're just starting out in comedy. You're still working out how to be funny and what you want to say. And he said, when you work out how to be properly funny and what you want to say about your leg, you'll be untouchable. But you need to ply your trade and work out how to do comedy first before you talk about your leg. Right. And I had an agent at the time, Mark Morrissey, who I mentioned that to, and he said... He said, yeah, I agree. And he said, the thing is, if you talk about your leg on stage now, you'll only ever be known as the, as the one-legged comedian. He said, but if you, if you can work out how to build up a repertoire and, be, and kill a crowd first, then you talk about your leg, then it'll just be another string to your bow. So for 13 years of stand-up, I didn't talk about wow. my leg. Um, and it was only after I was nominated for the Perrier Award for the first time Two things happened. Firstly, I was nominated for the award and I thought, okay, I've now got proof that I'm, I might be good at this. I'm funny. <laughs> I've, got little, I've got a certificate. I've got a trophy, like a nominee's trophy yeah. that says maybe I know how to do this. But that, that was also 2001. And then I would say, what, maybe two weeks after the festival finished? Not even that. I flew uh, through Heathrow Airport three days after September 11 to go to do a gig in Paris and my foot set off the metal detectors which it always does but normally I would just go oh it's a prosthetic leg and 
but the, there was more there was more tension around because it was three days after September 11. And so I thought, right, well, they're going to want to check it. But the guy just got really freaked out and was like, oh, I'm really sorry, mate. No, go through, go through. And I'm like, well, no, I'm happy for you to check. Like, there might be a knife down there. Have a look. And he's like, no, 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 go, go, go. And I thought, well, this is ridiculous. Like, this guy is more freaked out. I then wrote a line. I, I, I talked about it on stage. And the line was that he had a look on his face that said, I don't care if the plane goes down. I don't want to offend a spastic. <laughs> And I purposely, I purposely made that line as offensive as possible because I wanted really it to come is. across that because he had that look of, I'm so freaked out by your leg that I don't care if the plane goes down, I don't want to offend you, and I don't even know how to talk about you and I'd probably get the word wrong anyway. So that's why that line was there. And I remember coming back from, I was living in Dublin at the time, coming back from Paris, going on stage the next week at the International um, Bar in front of about 30 people and thinking, right, I'm going to talk about my leg because I want I want people to know that it's okay to talk about it. I don't want security guards to be so freaked out that they might let a terrorist on a plane. And I guess I was being selfish. I was like, I don't want another terrorist being led on this plane Imagine. because you're too freaked out to check his leg. Um, and so that was the first time I spoke about it. And I guess those two things came together. I finally had proof that maybe I was good at comedy but I also had a reason to talk about it. And the reason was to say, it's okay. It's okay to ask me about it. Mm. It's okay. And then I remembered that story about the woman saying, can you still have sex? <laughs> and I told that on stage and then followed it up with what you said, which was, I mean, what does her boyfriend do? Does he have a run up? Jump in, my friend. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so Long jump. what had happened in those... <laughs> so in those 13 years... I'd worked out how to turn something that happened to me into a funny story and find a reason to talk about it. And so then, because also the other thing about having a prosthetic leg that's not visible is audiences, I could feel the audience when I mentioned it would be like, well, why are you telling us this? We can't see it. What, there has to be a reason for you to bring this up. And so when, when I found that the reason and what I would say to them is, I just want people to know that it's okay... Yeah. Then they were like, oh, all right, okay, there's a point here. And then gradually, weirdly, I found, you know, people would come up to me after gigs. I remember a dad coming up to me after the comedy store once in London and saying, I've got a daughter who's deaf and I've never found anything funny in it. But you talking about your leg has made me realise that I need to not take it quite so seriously and that oh. it's okay. So, and then weirdly, that is it okay became part of the last leg. Which takes me beautifully to my next question because I really wanted to talk to you about what is and isn't okay. If that's okay. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, question number two for you. On the last leg, you started the hashtag, is it okay? Which was um, a kind of a conversation starter you wanted to dismantle some of the stereotypes uh, around conversations. Like the woman who said to you, you know, can you still have sex mm. if you've only got one leg? Um, and people start, then started writing in on, on, or tweeting in saying, is it okay to ask, for example, why some people are competing? Because they don't look particularly disabled in the Paralympics? Or is it okay to find, find a Paralympian fit? And did you yep. enjoy being able to kind of pick apart an uncomfortable conversation and give it license? Well, yeah, well, funnily enough, the producer, so the, the producer of the original Last Leg was a guy called Pete Thomas. And he and I sat down with another writer called Adam Vincent, and we were talking about what could be possible segments on the show. And we knew that people would have questions about the disabilities. And we knew that we had to demystify them. And so he, his name for the segment was going to be uh, like Paralympic surgery, but like a, like a politician surgery where people can come along and ask questions. <laughs> and then in all honesty, we just forgot to do it in the first show. We, it was such a mad kind of scramble to pull this show together that we never did it. And then it was probably that night, I looked on Twitter afterwards to see what people's response, responses were. And someone wrote, is it okay to ask? Exactly. Is it okay to find a Paralympian fit? Um, and then someone else said, is it okay to ask what the disabilities are? Because some of them don't look disabled. So the next day we got into the meeting and I read those out and we were like, oh yeah, this is the Paralympic surgery idea. We should definitely do this as a segment in the show. And then the director, Jules, said, hashtag, is it okay? Yeah. And we went, oh, that's great. That's really good. And it was just... Again, a lovely accident that those two questions were both phrased with is it okay in it. Brilliant. So, and that was it. It kind of took off from there. And What were some I, of your favourite questions as regarding is it okay? During the Paralympics, my favourite my favorite was is it okay to ask how a guy with one arm gets out of the swimming pool or a guy with no arms gets out of the swimming pool? Of course it's okay. I mean, is, is it okay? I mean, I think it's okay. Of course it's okay, yeah. but the reason I loved that question is that it came from one of the American wheelchair rugby players. Ah. So, an ac again, another accidental fascinating thing happened. Because we were on live at 10 o'clock every night and the Paralympians all had to go back to their dorms and just do nothing, they're not allowed out, they all ended up watching our show. Yeah. So it's been – I remember Sir Philip Craven, who was head of the IPC – on the way to Rio, said, you guys are more famous outside of the country than you are in Britain. And he said, you don't realise it because every Paralympian from around the world has watched The Last Leg in London oh. in 2012. 
And they loved it because they'd never seen anyone do what we were doing before yeah. about Paralympics. So to get a question like that from a Paralympian, from the American wheelchair rugby team saying, is it okay to ask? It, it made me go, well, great. That means Paralympians are watching it. But it also means for the audience at home, they're like, oh, yeah, of course, disabled people have questions about other disabled people. Yeah. <laughs> you don't walk so, around with a dictionary inside your head with all the no, an encyclopedia even and an answer for every disability yeah. and conundrum it presents. So for me, the is it okays that I like the most are the ones that I don't know whether it's is it okay and we have to have a discussion about it. And I think, I think the world of Twitter and online outrage and online media um, and clickbait has led us to a world where we think that if someone's offended online, then that's the end of the world. And when it comes to jokes, you can break jokes apart and you can get very nerdy and mathematically precise about who's the victim of the joke and what exactly is that you're saying and all of that kind of stuff. But it really, most of it comes down to intent. Yeah. Who who are you trying to make fun of? And and even funnily enough, I was on a I was on a uh, a chat show in Ireland recently, um, and I I ended up talking about doing a bit that I've done in stand up, which is I was so excited when I got my first blade prosthetic. You know, like those proper Paralympic blades that that look really cool because I'd seen people with blades on TV, and I always wanted one. And then eventually they made one that would fit my stump. And I was so excited. And then Oscar Pistorius ruined it for all of us. <laughs> it was sexy for and a I, minute and, I, and then he ruined it. Exactly. And I said, now I know how Charlie Chaplin felt when Hitler stole his tiny moustache. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> that's one of those ones where it's like, oh, God, you just made a Hitler joke. But... <laughs> Afterwards, and a disability kind of talking, joke, by the way. You did it all. All of them at the same <laughs> <laughs> It's like bingo. Yes. Well, and a domestic domestic violence joke, if you want to include all of them. But if you go through each of those beats and work out what, you know, what is being said with each of those jokes, you know, I'm not holding, I'm saying Oscar Pistorius ruined it. I'm, you know, and I'm saying that, that Hitler ruined it for Charlie Chaplin. Like... It's one of those things where you hear trigger words and you think, oh, God, this is really offensive. And yet if you want to break it all down, I'm, I'm happy to say I'm on the right side of, right. you know. Yeah, on the right side of right. I think we live in a world where it's okay to be offended and it's okay to own up to it and go, oh, I'm really sorry. Yeah, I shouldn't have said that. I've done that. I've done that on the last leg. I've, I've... Yeah, we have to be able to apologise and move on, right? You can't just keep cancelling everyone. There's going to be no one left. No, of course. And the whole thing is that, the, you know... The idea, even the idea that there is a cancel culture. Like I, I did an interview a couple of years ago about cancel culture and I went, tell me one person who's been cancelled really for what they've said, for what they've said. Like it's not, I don't think cancel culture is a big deal, as big no. a deal as some people. I think Sharon uh, Osbourne feels that she was cancelled. For? For backing Piers Morgan's freedom of, right to have a freedom of speech. Not that necessarily she agreed with what he was saying, just that he had the right to say it. What was she cancelled from? The talk, ironically. <laughs> <laughs> she was silenced. Well, do you know what? I will say that there is an interesting discussion to be had about cancel culture and about how... Because for me, if you look at people 
like, for instance, okay, say Louis C.K. Well, actually, no, I'll t- tell you what, we don't need to talk about Louis C.K. Let's talk about um, Kathy Griffin, Roseanne Barr, and maybe Sharon Osbourne as well, because yeah. it seems to me that the only people that I know that have been effectively cancelled for what they've said have been women. The only examples I can think of have been... Roseanne Barr was a Trump supporter and her, her show was dropped. Kathy Griffin was very anti-Trump and she, was, she was, had a huge backlash. And you've just brought up Sharon Osbourne. It's the interesting thing. There are very few, if any, in particular white men who've been cancelled for what they've said. I mean, Dylan Moran made a great point. So Louis C.K. was... was was um well was masturbating in front of people that he that worked for him he would he would so that's a sexual kind of, abuse it was a sense of sexual abuse and he his his thing was well you know i asked their permission but if you're a runner on a tv show and the guy hosting the tv show like if i said to one of the runners can you come to my can you come to my dressing room while i masturbate i mean just the, the asking in itself is kind of tricky and if they then they feel like they have to because i'm the boss so and Dylan Moran made a great point. Someone said, you know, does he deserve to be cancelled, blah, 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 blah. And Dylan Moran said, well, okay, imagine you're the best. I think he said, imagine you're the best crocheter in the world and you turn up to the world's crochet championships and everyone's expecting you to win and then you start masturbating in front of people. You're going to have to answer some questions. Like that's not, that's not cancel culture. That's, that's – and look, and, and my point is – I think it's actually – yeah, I think what he's doing is, is indecent exposure at best. Even if you say you yeah. ask for permission, if you're asking somebody who's got no power in that situation to kind of, or feels powerless in that situation, that's an abuse of your own power. Right. And then he went and talked about it in a stand-up show and filmed that stand-up show. And that stand-up show, I'm pretty sure, won a Grammy. So, mm. and, and look, this is nothing, you know, like I said, I know Louis C.K. and I've worked with him before. My point is, not only was he not cancelled, he won a Grammy for talking about it. So. Yeah. In some ways, we have sure. to have these conversations. We have to talk about them as uncomfortable as they are. And you do it brilliantly on the last leg. I mean, there was a clip that, I mean, I as a woman, I just thanked you for, um, which was to do with just over two years ago now, Sarah Everard, as we, we know, was kidnapped, raped and murdered by Wayne Cousins, who was a serving police officer. And in, in the immediate yeah. aftermath of her death, there was this kind of shit show of advice that was issued by the Metropolitan Police to to women who felt that they weren't safe in the company of a lone officer. And they told them to, quote, run into a house, wave down a bus, or call the police if they didn't believe the officer was who they said they were. And the narrative that was going, yeah, that was amplified, obviously, on social media, which was awash with advice on ways women could and should protect themselves from men, rather than calling upon men to address male violence. And you, quite rightly, were having none of it. You're appalled. And you had your say. There's also a lot of talk today about what women can do to stop being murdered by men. I think we need to talk about what men can do. Like, for example, calling out inappropriate behaviour from other men. Whether it's someone you work with, one of your best mates, or just some bloke in a pub, if you see something, you need to say something. The man that killed Sarah Everard was known to watch brutal pornography, had been accused of exposing himself to women a number of times, and was known to his previous workmates as the rapist. This week, women have had to imagine their worst nightmare come true. All you have to do is have an awkward conversation with your mate, or your mate's boss. It genuinely, it's time for men to step up and call out other men, even over the things that seem little, because those little things can lead to something big. Now, we all know that violence against women is not okay, but laughing about it, dismissing it, and covering up is also not okay. And if you're doing any of those things, 
you're part of the problem. The response back from that, well, you tell me, how did it feel to stand up and, and have a conversation and, and outline what's not okay? It's really, it's really interesting that you bring that up because for me, it, it's funny. It, many years ago, I was, a, I was hosting a, a concert for the Dalai Lama um, in Perth. And it was, it was a whole, it was a weird thing. It was a whole bunch of bands all performing and I was hosting it. And, but we had an audience with his holiness and he came and sat with us. And the one thing I took away from it, which I ended up saying on stage was, I remember him saying, he said, I, I am simple Buddhist monk. He said, I don't know music, I don't know comedy, but I know this, you have a microphone, you should use it to say something. And I've always taken that, and I like that. If you've got a microphone, you should use it to say something. So I think in the, in the week after Sarah Everard's murder and, and, and that advice that had come from the police, I mean, look, what I, I have a couple of writers that work with me on The Last Leg, um, some of them, you know, some men, some women. So it's good to get a, it's, and I want that because I want a, I want a, a woman's perspective, but it's such a weird thing because it feels like a, it feels like a no brainer. Like, uh, I, for me, it felt like, well, it's really obvious that that's what should be said. And it was, but it wasn't what was being said by the people that should be giving exactly what you said should have been coming from those in authority. It shouldn't have been left to you to say, by the way, you know, if you hear somebody making misogynistic jokes even, or you're on a WhatsApp group where something's posted that shouldn't be said, if you don't challenge it and call it out, you are complicit. And we all have a responsibility. And, you know, being told to cross the road to keep myself safe walking home at night was not the advice I wanted. I was furious and I wanted yeah. to go and protest at that vigil in Clapham. And I was hugely encouraged by the number of a men there and the number of people that put their own neck on the lines like Kate Middleton you know she went yeah that was powerful she used her microphone even if she didn't say anything just by being there now two years on we've had a very depressing uh report uh, conducted by Baroness Casey into the failings of the Metropolitan Police well you know you've where one female police officer said if in London if I was raped at the moment I wouldn't even be bothering to report it. You might as well make rape legal in London, such as the detection rate and the, the low levels of wow. detection rate. Now, how horribly depressing is that for all of us? You know, all of us. Yeah. As the father of two daughters, that must be just the most awful news to your ears. As a 50-year-old woman walking home late at night, it terrifies me. It shouldn't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And... Uh... It's really strange because it, it, it's a long roundabout story. But I, when, when I first found out we were having kids, I genuinely thought, uh, I, hope, I hope we have a girl because cause I, cause I'm not equipped to bring up a real man. This literally, and I, and I know, <laughs> I know how mean? ridiculous all of this is. Well, because I'm a, you know, I'm a goofy comedian who, who breaks things. I'm not a handyman. I'm not, you know, I, and I've, I've since come round to thinking that, you know, realizing how ridiculous I was, but, you know, as, as the father of two daughters, it, there is a part of me that, that wants to say to them, look, just be careful when you're out, you know, because they're, they're not of teenage years or not going out years, but there's now a point where I think I look back and think, 
I, I, not that I wish that I had boys, because that's not that's ridiculous. I don't I don't wish I had boys. But if I had boys, then I probably could teach them to respect women. And I think there is something to be gained in 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 having boys and teaching them to treat women the right way. And um, you know, because that's where does that come from? If you're a boy and you're growing up and you're you have to be taught it. I listen. I've you know. I'd, yeah, I think and so it's it's incumbent for me. It's incumbent upon, yeah. it's a you know, sexual abuse and rape of women by men is a man's problem. Is a men's problem. It's not a women's problem. Women shouldn't have to deal with that. Men have to deal with that. Yeah, and you know that's where that that came from. That men have to try to stop other men. Um. And teach your children and, you know, take your mates aside. When but also, yeah, them... take them aside in the pub when they are making a joke that, that crosses the line and isn't funny. You have to say, you can't say that. No. Just go, going home and going, oh, dear God, he sounds a bit dated now. And, you know, did you call it out? No. Well, you kind of got to. And, yeah, it really is uncomfortable. But trust me, so's trying to find a safe side of the street at 11 o'clock at night when you're walking home on your own. Join me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I read an amazing thing once, and I'd have to look it up. It's so long ago, and I'm going to be so vague that it was called Frown Power or the Power of Frown or something like that. And it's about when someone tells an off-taste joke, whether it's misogynist or whatever or racist or whatever, you don't even have to call it out. If you just don't laugh at it, do you know what I mean? Like if someone, if you're in a group of people, if I'm in a group of people and I I tell a joke that's off colour, if everyone's laughing at it, I'm going to think that joke's fine. Well, it's validation, right? Yeah. Yeah. If no one laughs at it, then something in my head's going to go, maybe that joke's not appropriate. Mm. It's such a weird thing. I've done that with cab drivers. Uh, I've done that, you know, when someone says something, all you have to do is just go quiet and that person suddenly, then they feel awkward. It's a, it, it re- genuinely, that's a, that's a good starting point, I yeah. think. Yeah, even if you don't feel brave enough to be vocal, just, just drown just them in silence. Laugh. Yeah. Don't give them the awkward laugh. Mm. Just, just kind of, just go, uh-huh. And then that person is stuck <laughs> silently in the front of the cab or in the corner of the party going, oh my God, I've got to live in this awkwardness yeah. that I've just created. Feeling like a schmuck, yeah. So it's, it, it, yeah, it, there was a point on the last leg where I used to rant about stuff and they kind of went viral. And I remember the channel at the time going, we'll do more of those because they're getting loads of attention and loads of hits on YouTube. And they were, but they had to come from a real place. Yeah. You can't just confect because, you know. Otherwise you're Howard just... Stern with nothing real to say. Exactly. Yeah. But then, then it kind of felt, especially around 2015, 2016, around Brexit, around Trump, that everybody was shouting. And there were a lot of angry people ranting on both sides of the divide. Yeah. And so, you know, I started to pull back then because I thought, well, another shouty voice in amongst it all isn't going to help. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, I'm getting older. There's nothing, something funny about a, a young, fresh face ranting, but an older face ranting. <laughs> I don't know. You know what? I think when you, you chose your moment with with that piece with Aunt Sarah Everard, it was really powerful. And there was nothing funny in it. It wasn't you being a comedian. It was you just being a really good citizen. Well, thank you. And I think that's that's for us. 
again, having that comes from covering the Paralympics. Well, no, I was going to say it comes from covering the Paralympics, which is a sport that you have to be genuine about. You yeah. can't just mock. But it also comes from, you know, radio. Like when you were talking about before about the connections and the people that influenced me, I remember a, ra- I remember a radio announcer called John Vincent who was incredible. Some people were just born to do radio. And he was amazing. He used to start each show by saying, well, good morning, listener. And I joked with him once and said, I love that you think you've only got one listener. I think that's a really funny joke. And he went, no, it's not a joke. People only listen to the radio on their own. Yeah. People don't listen in groups. It's a totally different conversation. Yeah. So just talk to them as if they're one person. I was like, oh, right. But we did a thing. I remember being on on radio in Adelaide when um, the Formula One driver Ayrton Senna died. Mm. And he was huge in Adelaide because at that point the Formula One Grand Prix was in Adelaide. And he was a a hero. I think he had won it a couple of times. He was just, and people were devastated. And I remember Vinny saying, we were trying to work work out what to do on radio that morning. How do we pay tribute to him? What can we do? We can't be funny. Do we do a sketch? What do we do? And he said, just ask people how they're feeling. He said, just open the phone lines and say, call up, tell us how you feel. And eventually I think we did a thing where we said, if you're driving at the moment, put your headlights on as a mark of respect. And a friend of mine was on like highway and said it was amazing to see all these lights just go on. But, oh, that's, put but their hairs on my arms up. Oh. Yeah, it's just about, it's okay to be genuine. Yeah, yeah um, it is. And I think a lot of people shy from it. And it, it, especially because we're live, because mm-hmm. we are covering, you know, if, if that had been a pre-recorded show, for instance... And we were talking about the Mets comment because I reckon the Mets comment about Sarah Everard probably came the night before from memory. I think it was a Thursday night because I, I have a feeling I remember being in the car on the way to the studio calling the producer and we were talking about what we needed to say about it. If that show had been pre-recorded and then went to air two days later, it wouldn't have felt as urgent. It wouldn't have felt as necessary. So I think all of those things, you know, being live, having the radio experience, knowing that you can be genuine about a subject, all of those come together. Yeah. And, and you know, so we, we use the microphone to say something. As you should. As you should. Thank you so much. That was, uh, that was lovely talking that through with you. Your third and final question, Adam. Okay. Um, this one... Well, you're going to have to go with me on this one. It's a little bit dark. <laughs> I love any question that starts like that. Imagine, if you will, that you were sadly to die tomorrow and you find yourself at the pearly gates only to be told that before you cross over to the other side, you can return to Earth for one hour. And I want to know, in that 60 minutes, where do you go? Who do you see? What do you say to them? How do you spend your final moments on Earth? Oh, you're going to make me cry. (laughs) You really are going to make me cry. I... Okay, I'm not even going to think it through. I'm just going to say I'm going to I'm going to um, uh, see my wife and kids. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? It's and so in particular, simple. my daughters. Yeah, yeah. Just spend time with my daughters for an hour. What would we do? It wouldn't even matter what we did. Just be, be something really banal, like you know, watching Brooklyn Nine Nine or or drawing. Probably draw. Probably drawing with my kids. Um, I think is my favourite thing to do. Is it? And we the both both of them are quite artistic and i think my favorite moments are you know 
maybe music on in the background, not necessarily, but just drawing. And, and sometimes my eldest is now 12, but she'll still do it. She'll still create something. I think last holidays we were making stickers together. Um, but I think it would just be sitting around a table with my daughters just drawing. And, and for me, I like drawing cartoon characters. So it would be like Mighty Mouse or Banana Man or I just go online and search Banana cartoon Man. character and then draw and then paint. And then my, you know, my daughters are scribbling and drawing and just, um, you know, it's, it's for me, that's what, that's what's life's about. And it, it, it hurts me because I have to spend so much time away from them because, yeah. you know, that we were all living together in 2019 over here in London and then my daughters started getting homesick and my wife was getting work in Australia and we kind of went, well, that's fine. I can do 10 weeks away at a time and then go back. But, and, but, and my dad worked for Qantas, so he was always away. So I knew what it was like to have a dad that was gone for two weeks, but when he was home, he was properly home so with present. nothing in yeah. the diary. Yeah. Um, How lovely. And like now I go back to Australia in a couple of weeks time and I've purposely cleared the diary as much as possible. Um, so, and I remember of, of all the people who reminded me of this was Frankie Boyle. Frankie Boyle and I were doing a weekend of gigs in Newcastle that, once. That, that great and sentimental we, fool. <laughs> oh, honestly. So there was a point, there was a comedy club in Newcastle called The Hyena. And when you stayed there, when you played there, they would put you up in an apartment because I think the owner of the club owned an apartment. And so you'd spend a weekend with just some random comic just living together. And I had two weekends in the space of six months where it was Frankie Boyle. And Frankie and I would sit up and, you know, we'd go out and we'd, I think we were both drinking at the time, but then we'd come back and we'd have cups of tea and we'd talk about the universe. And um, I remember him talking about how his dad would come home at probably seven o'clock every night. He'd go to work, go to the pub, and then he'd come home. And I was like, oh my God, that's what dads did. Because my dad didn't. My dad had been gone for two weeks and then I'd come home from school one day and he'd be in a beanbag watching you know, Warner Brothers cartoons, and then that's it. We'd have him home for 10 days. Right. So so I guess that's kind of what I've ended up doing with my daughters, which is, you know, it breaks my heart for me to be away from them, but I hope it teaches them that you can have a job that you love mm. and that, you know, there are no boundaries. You can go anywhere in the world and do whatever it is that you love. But when I'm with them, it's just about being with them. And nine times out of 10, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Uh, just just being there and and really being there, as you said, being present mm. uh, is what's important. So for me, that extra hour, um, yeah, just colouring in with my girls. Yeah. It's, and it is this, I think in so many ways, lockdown taught us that. It's the stuff we missed was really just people. It was contact. It was being able to, you know, just being able to touch their skin. Hold their hands. Oh, and, you know, ironically, all I did for seven months, because Melbourne had, you know, Melbourne had the longest lockdown of any city in the world. Yeah. Pretty much. All I did for a lot of seven months was just colour in with my girls. And I was... (laughs) (laughs) That got... And and then you got to work with them. I mean, you took one expression that one of them, uh, one conundrum that one of your daughters presented you with, and you've turned it into two best-selling children's books, which you, (laughs) by the way, have cut them in on, which is... Pretty remarkable. You've gone four ways on the publishing uh, royalties between your two girls, yourself, and their chosen charity. Yeah. So when, so it, yeah, it was it was my my youngest who had said to me, and she must have been about eight at the time. This was pre lockdown, 
Um, uh, she said, I, I don't know when I grow up whether I want to be a rock star or a detective. <laughs> and I said, well, you do both. You'd be a rock star by night and a detective by day. And, and it wasn't long after that that I was called in for a meeting with some publishers saying, do you have any ideas for books? And in particular, what would you write for your eldest? And I went, oh, she said she wants to be a rock star and a detective, so I'd probably write that. And I went, oh, my goodness, and what would happen in that? And then we started talking about this, this story. And so, um, and so then I came home and I sat with her and went, right, so who would, the, who would the suspects be and what could the crime be? And we came up with this story of these two 12-year-olds that are on their first ever tour, music tour, and wherever they perform, a priceless piece of art is stolen. But all the evidence makes it look like they're the ones doing it. So they have to solve the crimes and work out who's framing them. And so, and I said to both my daughters, I said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to split the proceeds, what I get paid for this, with you guys. And then, and then one of them said, well, no, you should get some as well. And I was like, okay, fine. And then my, one of the other ones said, well, actually, and let's give some to charity. Let's split it four ways. So, um, and to be honest, like we've not got around to working out which charity we're going to give it to. I think we identified there's a place in, in Melbourne called the Song Room, um, which takes uh, music lessons to disadvantaged schools. Nice. Um, so I think we'll look into that and probably um, a disability support charity in the, in the UK as well. But ah. after the first book was written, my, my eldest said, I really enjoyed that, Daddy, but can someone die in the second book? <laughs> <laughs> so it turns out kids love murders they love, so, they love a murder so this nice the first one's rockstar detectives the second one is rockstar detectives murder at the movies yeah so she got her um, way someone died she got her way and i'm trying to make them slightly more gruesome as each one goes along and um, you're the perfect man for the job with this though because you know how to land a really great message in a really entertaining and compelling and often funny way and it, it seems like such a no-brainer that you would write young adult fiction because 12-year-olds, it's, it's not like you're doing six words on a page and a doodle. This is this is proper narrative. It's got to be a proper story. And, uh, I mean, I wrote, the, I wrote the first story without plotting it through and planning it. And the editor said, yeah, next time maybe <laughs> if you're doing a detective story, maybe plan it a little bit. Um, but... And I, again, that idea of if you've got a microphone, use it to say something. Yeah. I've tried to Im- put some positive messages in there. The second one in particular is about how representation matters um, because, you know, it's Charlie and George are the two kids and George is in a wheelchair, um, but it was important for me to write that in a way that the wheelchair actually makes him a better detective in that he's faster. There's a chase scene and he's going downhill, but because he's in the wheelchair, he's faster than someone who's running. Superhero. Um Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I've tried to I've tried to make a positive and put takeaways in there for the kids that you know. Again, just using the microphone to say something. Yeah, oh, I look. I look for you know what. My son's like a little bit too old now. Uh, he's he's fourteen, going on fifteen. Make the most right. of it to, to sit down and read a story like that too. But I used to love bedtime stories with him and the age that your girls are at the moment I mean just hold on tight because they pull away so quickly I mean they come back and they still remain you know as captivating and as lovely as ever it's just different teenagers yeah. you know should come with a manual <laughs> and I can see much well <laughs> the teenagers manual oh my god um, before we go 
um, I'd love to come and have dinner at yours one night. And when I say that, I'm not inviting myself to your house. I'm, in, I'm inviting myself and, well, I'm going to make a booking. You've got a restaurant, Adam, not far from where I live. I have. Oh, is that close to where you live? Yeah. Well, I'm South London and you're, this is SW6, isn't it? Parsons Green. It's Parsons Green. And it, it's so... Tell me what it's called. Because it, it doesn't sort of scream cuisine. It's called... It's called The Freak Scene. Yeah. So it sounds like you could go there to be terrorised or fed. But that's not the case. <laughs> it's kind of Pan-Asian punk, isn't it? It is. So it's this guy called Scott Holsworth who... He was head chef at Nobu here in London. He set up Nobu Melbourne. And then he had a place on the King's Road called Kurabuta. He oh, was that um, his? So Yes. Good. You know it. Okay. Yes. I'm a sushi junkie. Right. So you have me at okay. Nobu. <laughs> yeah. Right. So he, he, prior to lockdown, he had a place in Soho called, the, called Freak Scene. Uh-huh. And I met him at a Royal Flying Doctor Service charity event, because that's what Australians do. And... We became friends and I would I would take people to his restaurant. It was my favourite place in London to eat. And then during the lockdowns, you know, it closed. Uh, he started up a pop-up last year in Clerkenwell and I took my wife there. And afterwards he was saying, look, I'd, I'd love to get Freak Scene happening again, but, you know, I just don't have the money. I need, it. I need investors. And it was on the way home. She said, you should invest. You've got, you've got a little bit of money. Why don't you? And so I took him out to dinner and said, okay, what do you need? What can we do? And then said go and do it because he's the guy that does it. And he's just created this amazing, I mean, amazing vibe. The food's like deep fried bao buns with red duck curry. It's like tuna sashimi pizza. Um, Ooh, it's, uh, I saw some dish- really nice looking, was it yellowtail with jalapenos and the oh pizza tataki looks good. I have had a look, Adam. I'm not, I'm not just like blowing smoke up your ass. I'm coming for dinner. <laughs> oh, would you want to? I've selected my dishes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I'll sort you out. And it's so, it's so exciting. And it's all because of him. He's like a rock star of cooking. Nice. So it's, but I've spent a couple of nights at the, at the restaurant already since it's open. And I could see, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not drinking at the moment, but I could see how you could ruin your life. <laughs> <laughs> As a restaurateur. As a restaurateur. Oh my god! Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's ex- it's exciting, and it, it's it's a little bit of magic's happened again. Adam, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been well everything I had hoped it would be. I've been watching and uh, listening for a long time now, and I'm a huge fan. So thank you. Oh, it's been absolutely my pleasure and I can't wait to have dinner with you. I'm coming, I'm coming. Uh, And if you live in the Parsons Green area or in London or you don't mind driving a bit for some fine food, uh, Freak Scene is available. You can book it on Open Table or wherever you get your dining reservations. (laughs) (laughs) And the two children's books, you've got Rockstar Detectives, A Murder at the Movies and Rockstar Detective, the original book, are available now wherever you get your books. Ideal gifts for anybody that's pre-teen. Those children that still talk to you. (laughs) You're amazing. Thank you so much. A huge thanks to Adam, his children's books, Rockstar Detectives, Murder at the Movies, and his debut, Rockstar Detective. Both are available wherever you get your books. And if you'd like more conversation with other great comedians, dive into our back catalogue where you'll find episodes with Kerry Godleyman, Griff Rees-Jones, Daisy May Cooper, Russell Kane, Lee Francis, Rob Brydon, and many more. And good news, we've started dropping an extra mini episode every week now on a Tuesday. It's called Something from the Cellar, and it brings you some of the very best bits from some of our 
our very best guests from the last four years. To make sure it lands on your feed, just follow or subscribe to the show. I'll be back next Friday with a great new guest. Until then, thanks for your company. White Wine Question Time is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.